Hello and welcome back to Game Breaking Feature. This is your co-host Jared Bruner. So you guys may have noticed that we haven't released an episode in a few weeks. That's because I am a dad now. We recorded this back in December, but right about that time I realized, like probably many parents, um, or I felt rather, that the house was in no condition. I spent a lot of time getting ready for the newborn, and now that everything is good, baby is here, everyone's healthy and happy. I had some time to sit down and finally edit this podcast. So my apologies to our fans and our guests. We are looking forward to having a lot more guests and episodes in 2020. Thank you for sticking with us. Enjoy this episode. We'll be seeing more of you soon. Hello and welcome to Game Breaking Feature, the podcast where we analyze and discuss common elements of modern video game design and development. My name is Stephen Bennett, and in this episode we'll be talking about exposition, a traditional convention of storytelling since the dawn of man. But can video games offer an alternative? To help me discuss exposition is a man who the ancient prophecy foretells as the chosen one. Armed with only his golden microphone and mighty voice, he is destined to slay the evil dragon Ubathor. Lord of the podcast realm and set us all free. It's my good friend Jared Bruner. Jared, how you doing, man? If you're a diligent fan of the show, you'd know that I actually didn't get the golden microphone until after slaying Gubathor and freeing the podcast realm from the grasp of the evil mm. audio empire. Uh, I'm, ret- I'm retconning all of this. I, it's already been written, and so I think we're good this way. This whole podcast, it really, you know, it really took a turn after the fourth season. I don't think anyone's paying that close of attention to these storylines. Uh, I beg to differ. <laughs> listen you don't know about the there's there's somebody who like this is the first time they've ever listened to our podcast and they're like what did what i is miss this? i thought they're gonna talk about things <laughs> what <laughs> i thought this was about video games well obviously <laughs> well uh, the the other voice you're hearing is our amazing guest for this episode she's the founder of Echimostawanon games and the digital interactive coordinator with imaginative please welcome to the show megan Byrne. megan hello welcome how are you i'm good how are you I'm doing very well. Thank you for asking, and thank you for thank you so much for uh, for being here. Uh, people listening to this don't really know, but we've uh, we've had all kinds of of weird technical difficulties getting this episode started. But we're here well, now. Why don't you tell them about from the beginning, Steve? <laughs> nice segue, dude. You're, you're actually good at segues. I'm the one who's hosting. I'm supposed to be good at these things. <laughs> it's important that they don't stick out, though, like a sore thumb. I know. Well, I always have to draw attention to them every single time. I have to make them stick out like a sore thumb. So, Megan, with Imaginative, you just wrapped up a festival fairly recently. How did, how did that go? Oh, what amazing. It was actually our 20th anniversary. So, yeah, the festival is t- 20 years old. It's almost legal oh. in the States. Congra- congratulations. Thank um, you. So, what was the festival about? Uh, well, Imaginative is the world's largest international indigenous film and media screen-based festival. Anything that goes on a screen and made by an indigenous person, we showcase it, we show it off, and we support it. So what we started out doing way back in, I guess, the distant year to 1999, uh, I wasn't around then, obviously, <laughs> as uh, it just was a small kind of get-together being like, you know what? Uh, okay, so now we're making our own films. We got to show our own films, uh, and and that was generally because a lot of film festivals were like, well, this doesn't really follow the standard format. Um, it's weird. Uh, we can put it in experimental, and it, it was just kind of it was just kind of obvious that because it wasn't following a particular Western narrative, that uh, it just wasn't going to make it in those sort of Western showcase spaces. 
So mm-hmm. that's kind of where Imaginative came from. And they're not like the first. There have been Indigenous film festivals for a, a while, I think even since like the 70s or 60s. But Imaginative was kind of situated as like, let's go international. Let's bring everybody together. And so now it's kind of described as Indigenous Christmas. Uh, so it's when all the aunties <laughs> and the uncles come to town and we have like a party and everyone gets lit and it's amazing. And then uh, I think almost from the beginning, I think, well, it's been officially 15 years, I think, uh, that Imaginative has been showing what originally was called new media, which now we kind of call digital media, interactive, VR, all that kind of stuff. Anything that you can kind of interact with. And, and way back when, uh, when they started showing it, it was, these, you know, those weird interactive pieces that you would see at a, a gallery or something that was a website, but kind of had a little bit more to it. And of course, mm-hmm. back in the 90s, like having a cool website was a cool, amazing thing. And the heyday of flash animations. Oh, yeah. I remember <laughs> my first website. Let me tell you about my GeoCities friends soundboard that I made. <laughs> I miss GeoCities rings where you could just like constantly go through. And like that, something like that, if it had been kind of like coordinated by an indigenous person, you know, you could show it. And we had been showing stuff. And I, in fact, was shown at Imaginative for three years prior. And every time they were like, what do you think? How is it? And I was like, so when I come in, I got to set the scene. Like when I come in, it's like at the TIFF Bell Lightbox. It's freaking gorgeous. There's like that picture wall with the step and repeat like they have at the Oscars. There's like people taking photos all over the place. Everyone's like, oh my God, it's amazing. And then you go up the escalator and you're like, where's the digital stuff? And they're like, over there. I'm like, that's the washroom. So they're like, behind. <laughs> I was about to say, that sounds dope. And then, in, oh yeah. my God, it was this tiny ass room right behind the washrooms. No signage, by the way. Uh, the only reason why I knew is because there was going to be a talk. So they placed a volunteer outside of the washrooms to direct people so they didn't miss it and then they had another volunteer turning the sign around and making them walk up through the exit yeah i was like you guys and uh yeah we was getting i kept getting asked as an artist like what did i think and i was like uh i think you need to step your game up so i kind of complained about it for three years and then they decided to hire me i guess (laughs) to be fair like i was never like bitch, bitch bitch i was always like if you want to present this art at the same quality as your filmmakers. You got to give mm-hmm. them a space that works that way. And for me, coming from video games, I'm like, that's something like GDC. Hell, even I think the Sundance had like a VR section that was like out and open and you would you could get to it and you saw it and it looked really cool. So I was like, we're just hiding these pieces. You don't want to hide them. So they brought me on to kind of showcase their digital stuff. And then I kind of made my own department. So... I am the digital and interactive department. I just got an assistant, which is lovely. Was there anything shown at the festival that you're that you're just really excited for, really jazzed about that you can talk about? There were so many good things. Uh, there was a VR piece by Casey Coison, who's a Dene, uh, everything. He's a Dene Renaissance man. And uh, he started out doing like art and music. He still does like art and music, but he, he got into doing tilt brush. And he's working with uh, Metis VR sound designer and cinematographer Travis Merdi. And uh, they're working on a piece called We See Visions, which is just like 
gorgeous. It's made of actually originally Casey did a bunch of tilt brush experience spaces, which I just can't even describe them. They're just like so amazing to just be in very like, awe. like you just, you feel very small, but in a, a, like, you know, when you're looking at the stars in the middle of the woods kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, I love that piece. And then Ashley birds one last year, she did one small step. And then this year she worked with another artist whose name I can't remember, but their stuff is on itch.io and it's called full of birds. Ashley assures me she did not pick the name, <laughs> but it's a, it's essentially a, an exploration of what, what is a gallery space? What does it mean to look at art? What does it mean to experience art? And it's this other indigenous artist, a couple of her pieces that are put up in this like very claustrophobic, very tiny gallery. And then you can walk through the paintings into a representation world of that painting. It was really awesome. And it was really interesting how every time you played through, you just saw more and more that you didn't pick up on the first time. Sounds like a lot of really cool, exciting stuff being shown there. Now, we'll, we'll cover this again at the at the end of the episode, but how can people find information about Imaginative and how can they get in, involved? Oh, well, they can go to imaginative.org. Great name, by the way. Awesome name. All right. I, I used to be Aboriginal Center for Film and Media, which I was like, that just it's not the same ring to it. <laughs> <laughs> and then they almost immediately switched to Imagine Native, and everyone's like, "Ooh, I like it. It's punchy." <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. What was how can they get, how can people find it? So it's uh, ImagineNative.org online, and you can also find us on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook, and we thought about doing a YouTube channel, but I feel like that's a lot of work for us. <laughs> Whose work would that end up being, yours? Uh, no, no, we actually do have a social media person, thank God. <laughs> oh, okay. Then a uh, YouTube channel, for sure, 100%. I'm, I'm down with it, as long as it's, as long as it's someone else's job. <laughs> Yeah, no, like, and then I like, started thinking about like, but then who's going to have to make the content like social mm -hmm. media person usually is the person who puts it up, not the person who makes it. Well, that's someone else's job now. So it'll be mine. Yeah. So no, we know you too. Well, that's awesome. And people should definitely go check out the work that's being represented by Imaginative. I mean, it sounds awesome to me. Mm. I wish I could go to the festival. I'm not in Canada, but I would love to go. Let's sass about your company. We got Echimo Stawanon Games. So when did you start it and, and why did you start it? Uh, I started it in 2016 just because I was like, oh, I'm starting to actually do bigger story games. I'm probably going to want to have a company, especially because of like copyright and stuff like that. Um, and then because also in Canada, we have access to something called the Canadian Media Fund. And we also have access um, in Ontario. I have access to Ontario Crates, which are both like really great. They're not quite loans. They're more like investment programs. So you have to be incorporated in order to access that funding, but you don't need to be incorporated to apply. And so I was like, well, I'm going to want to start applying for these, these grants. So I was like, yeah, I will start a business now. Because it was like 30 bucks and I got it for 10 years without having to renew. So I was like, that seems like a fair investment <laughs> and just locking down that name. And originally I was working with a Maliseet artist, Tara Miller, and we were working on this one project that we thought we were going to go for funding for called Seal Skin. But just as we were going through it, we just realized like this is probably the wrong game to be the first one to come out. Um, we were playing around with ideas of like unsexy nakedness. Um, we were playing around with ideas of like 
family. Um, and then also I, we kind of realized that this sort of style we were going for was becoming cross appropriative. So one of the things that a lot of people don't know about, uh, I guess, because of like the pan native thing is it's actually like just as bad for me, uh, a Métis uh, Cree person to appropriate like a Haida style as it was for just, you know, like a settler to do the same thing. And so we were starting to appropriate kind of like Inuit sort of trappings, like mm. art flavor. And it was just a direction I didn't really want us to go. I felt like that was a bad, it was leaving a bad taste in my mouth. So we just canceled the project. Um, also, the project was so very broken. <laughs> like she would sometimes uh, instantiate the main character in the very first scene would sometimes instantiate like slightly off screen I, I don't know why it, there shouldn't have been a variance but like sometimes she would be where she's supposed to be and then just every once in a while she'd be slightly off screen and then you'd hit forward and she would just shoot into the sky never to return <laughs> sounds feature complete to me know, bug, bug or feature <laughs> like, it just, you, you accidentally invented kerbal space program <laughs> but the camera didn't go with her so okay. thanks team you're like what's going on kids these days need to use their imagination anyways <laughs> i know i know so so i was like that's not happening we'll be sure to tweet out all the information for etchmostowan on games hill agency and uh and all the information for imaginative as well so if any of this stuff sounds interesting to you uh you can follow us at gb feature and uh we'll make sure you get all the information there are we ready to dive into our discussion about exposition are we ever i'm feeling ready I'm feeling no, I'm I'm feeling ready. All right. This is a topic that I've been excited about since we started this podcast. It's it's a pretty broad topic, yeah. It is, yeah. And I'm actually probably gonna open it up to be even broader than the term exposition truly encompasses. But uh this this is one I this is one I'm really excited for. I was gonna say I'm about to like disappoint some of my high school English teachers by not remembering exactly what exposition is, but uh Jared. Let, let, let's, let's get into it though, because you know. We, I think everyone has an idea, but let's narrow it down maybe so we, we have an idea of what we're talking about here. Sure, let's do it. Let's let, let's hop in the time machine, Jared. Let's go. Cue the music. Uh, way back in episode 20, we actually talked to Kevin Chin about Colossal Cave Adventure for the PDP-10. It's a game that came out in 1976. It's a text-based adventure in which the player is presented with a description of their environment, and you issue the text inputs to, to move around. Uh, it's actually considered like one of the first work of interactive fiction with a video game as a medium and uh, had a recognizable narrative. In the original version, your goal was to find all the treasure and escape. However, there was kind of little information that the player was given about why they were performing the actions in the game. Somewhat of a narrative, but still not what you might think of in modern, yeah. modern terms. I don't know if people remember this or, or if people listened way back in episode 20, but the topic was endings. And at the time I had asked, does this game qualify for our definition of an ending of a video game? Because there's not really an ending to it. You just get all the treasures and you leave the cave and then the game ends and you get your score. Um, and I think that same kind of question applies here as we're talking about exposition, as we'll discuss a little later on. Typically, it's the beginning of a story, the introduction to a story. And I don't know if this one counts or not. It, it's, you know, it, it's known as being one of the first narrative games, but it, it feels like it's missing so many of the key components that define a, a narrative in the traditional sense. So I guess we'll see as we later on define this and discuss this, if, if something like this counts as having uh, true exposition. Yeah. And, you know, a few years later in 1981, we got 
Donkey Kong, the arcade release. And if you're not familiar with Donkey Kong, what are you doing? Have you seen our cover art? So little... oh, are you even a, are you even a game are you even a gamer? Some would say it's Come inspired, on. if not a direct ripoff of Donkey Kong art. We don't make any money off this. Please don't send a letter. You know, most people probably just fed quarters into the machine, but there was a little bit of a story at the beginning of that. Um, you you know, you're taking control of Mario and you're trying to rescue Pauline from from Donkey Kong. It's kind of the first game, according to this article that we'll we'll link later. Um, Chris Stone wrote at uh, Gamma Sutra. He says that Nintendo's Donkey Kong is widely considered the first game that had a story that players could see unfold on the screen. Unlike Pac-Man, which I guess sort of had a story. I don't know. I think we've, I feel like we've talked about that before. We did. Pac-Man, uh, Pac-Man came out, it was either the same year as Donkey Kong or the year before. It was like real, it was real close to Donkey Kong. And we did talk about Pac-Man, I think, in our cutscenes episode. Oh, that's um, right. Because it. Because it, d- it did feature uh, like little vignettes of Pac-Man and the ghosts getting into wild capers. But, you know, both um, both originally arcade releases. It's interesting that Miyamoto wanted to give context to what you're doing instead of just numbers going up on the screen, I guess. So, um, you know, super early examples, but uh, definitely somewhat of a narrative happening. Yeah. So um, I guess, Megan, do you have any do you have any experience with Colossal Cave Adventure? I, I'm I'm sure you've played Donkey Kong, but Colossal Cave Adventure is one that I never I never played. No, I don't have, but I do have experience with a lot of like a lot of games like that um, because they were often the only games that weren't typing stuff or what is it the transatlantic crossing shipping game that we had where you got to learn about all the provinces by moving goods in a truck wait is this canadian oregon trail this is new to me this is awesome wait what is what is this game so so canada has a game that teaches you about all the provinces because of course this is like pre-territories when it was written where you're like a trucker and you have to like load stuff into your truck and then you have to like take it across the country to like different spots and um, I think very much like Colossal Cave Adventure and most of the text games that I played is you needed to have the manual because you did not have the manual. You had no freaking idea what you were doing. Yeah, I was totally yeah. going to bring that up too. Yeah. I mean, that went on for a while. I mean, even Nintendo and, and probably some earlier Super Nintendo games, it was like, there's a whole backstory if you want to read like five pages of the manual. Oh, yeah. Like I remember playing Mech Warrior. That was the first non-educational game I had in my household with so many floppy disks. And I, okay, first of all, like, like I'm not, I don't want to get into mechanics, even though like every time I talk about it, I just get like twitchy because it's so badly designed. But there was like these minutes of exposition about your clan because like it was a war and everybody had their own clan. But like, if you had wanted any context to the exposition that they were giving you in the game, you actually had to read the manual and I remember so many times being like, why do we hate these people? And in some ways, it doesn't take away from the experience because, mm-hmm. you know, good soldiers don't need to know why you hate your enemy. Um, and it's like, that's oh, kind of disconcerting for a child. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, a lot of these, like you said, like even up in, I think, till early 2000s, a lot of exposition wasn't even in the game. It was in the books. And, and it's like pages of text i'm almost like did rl token like this feels like very token is like the lord of the rings and then like lord of the rings is the game and then the samarillion is the book that comes with it it's funny you bring that up i'm actually 
Um, my son and I are just about to finish reading the Silmarillion. I think we're about like four or five pages from the end of it. Is it just putting him to sleep every night? Oh, yeah. No, it puts him <laughs> right out. <laughs> my dad was uh, like, let's try. And then he's like, nope, nope. <laughs> <laughs> my son is three. He doesn't understand a thing I'm saying. I'm, and I, I know that because I don't understand a thing I'm saying as I'm reading Tolkien. <laughs> so why don't we try to define what we're talking about when we're talking about exposition. Um, I mean, I know what so it is, but it... I want to know what you guys think it is. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have um, a fancy English degree, so. Oh, well. Wait, do you? Yeah, yeah, I actually have oh, several oh, degrees. Great, oh, then perfect. I don't have to worry right. about disappointing a teacher that might hear. No, I can do it. <laughs> I can be the one that's disappointing my professor. Exactly. <laughs> So, well, I get Then, Megan, why don't you tell us um, what exposition is in the traditional sense? Well, I mean, exposition is essentially when you're like, I call it info dumping. But info dumping is sort of like an uncharitable term for bad exposition. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, essentially, exposition is like, I'm telling you something that you need to know in order to have context for what else is going on here. And generally, it's presented in literature as something that you're not learning by reading the actual story, but that like somebody is telling you or that you're reading in the story. Um, so, you know, if you come like a good example is like in sword and sorcery, when they come to like a dead kingdom and then there's a big plaque and they're like reading the translation of Elvish and it's like explaining what happened here. Like that's exposition. I think that's pretty clear. That makes sense to me. Yeah, I, I think exposition, as maybe a lot of people understand it, is sort of the lead up to any, any information about the lead up to the story that's actively going on in whatever it is you're enjoying, movie, book, uh, television show, like anything that's providing that context that surrounds the story. So in video games, how is it presented differently than in these other mediums that we've discussed? Are there, are there any big differences for the way the exposition is handled in, in video games? Well, I think that's a problem. Up till recently, it hasn't, which makes sense for like a medium that's relatively young. Mm -hmm. um, you're going to work from tradition. So what's tradition for stories? What kind of traditions do you have to look at? You have cinema and you have literature. And you maybe even have like oral storytelling, like so podcast, radio. So you're going to look at those three about like, well, how do I get across context for things that I can't show them through the gameplay? Uh, you know, that's where you kind of get like lore in the books or you get info dumping characters showing up every once in a while. Or, you know, like in um, a lot, I think what would be a really good example. Skyrim is probably a really great example of when you go up and then the, there's the the choice, the the dialogue trees that mm -hmm. like will just let you choose whether you want that exposition for things. But essentially, like that's what you're doing. You're just getting a little bit more control over whether you want to hear all of it or not. Um, so those were kind of things that were totally found in books and uh, and you know, in like Donkey Kong with the cutscene. I mean, mm -hmm. that's kind of no different than you know a flashback. And I guess one of the things that I always found really not frustrating at first, but I think as I started going on was like, there has to be a better way to get across context within these media, this medium that doesn't just rely on copying what was done in, in the previous mediums for, for artistic expression. So you touched on, I think, three important points that I think that sh should kind of be considered as we're talking about exposition. 
Uh, you mentioned cutscenes, you mentioned lore, and you mentioned dialogue. And I think that in video games, these are the three most typical ways that story is delivered to players. And earlier in this episode, I said, like, I, I may kind of want to open this discussion up to be just beyond exposition. I think that just storytelling in general in video games is, is something interesting to discuss. So kind of want to open it, open it up beyond just like the, uh, the context around a video game, but maybe have a little bit more discussion just about storytelling in general as we're, as we're moving forward. Because I think that these things kind of bleed all together as we're talking about the way story is delivered in games traditionally. And it's because these things, the use of cutscenes, lore, and dialogue, in a lot of games, especially in AAA games, the main way that story is communicated throughout an experience. Jared, how would um, Mrs. Wilson in high school, what, what would she think of this so far? <laughs> Mrs. Wilson, huh? I don't know. I just, I just, I just came up. I would, I just came up with a, a name for a woman I thought might be an English. That <laughs> sounds like yeah, it's a good, it's a good name. I, you know, I think, I think because we have an actual english professional here <laughs> what is the word <laughs> it's lit major there you go there you go <laughs> lit major um that's a good foundation for for what you're saying and i think that exposition as far as interactive mediums can go i does have a, a maybe a wider scope than we're talking about literature and and cinema so here's here's i guess maybe um my confession for the episode as much as as much time and effort as i've put into thinking about this i also find it very difficult to put into words a lot of my feelings on uh, the way that um, story interplays with gameplay. And so there's going to be a lot of ums and uhs as I'm trying to like <laughs> navigate through what we're talking about here. So I, I apologize in advance to all our listeners. Um, well, we could just stop recording <laughs> and you could like, go make a dream board or something. And we could just. I, I have been make This is. This, send a this link topic to has been. This has been on my mind since we started doing this podcast is how to, how to like frame an episode around storytelling in games. And so I've had lots and lots of thoughts on it, but they're all they're very muddy. They're they're very like half-baked ideas. So I will do my best to communicate <laughs> my my thoughts as I can, but some of them may come across a bit like a fever dream. We'll see how we'll see how it goes. Let's just free think um, here and I'll just edit it down to something that sounds manageable. How about that? Let's start this thing out on a, on a positive note. Megan, are there any games that make use of the traditional method of storytelling exposition in, in ways that are that are good, that are positive, like great examples of it? Oh my God, yes. Portal. Like, okay, I love Portal. Especially Portal 2 with kind of giving you context for what happened since the first game with the whole like, you've been recaptured, please lie down, wake up, everything's like, and then they just they mm -hmm. use the environment. Like that was to me a really great example of what you can do with a game without actually like saying anything. Uh, and because that's the problem I think a lot of people have with exposition, it's almost always words, mm -hmm. uh, whether that's like reading or listening. So what I really love about Portal was you're like, everything looks new. You have context for what you're going into. You wake up, everything's like really gross. The bed is so gross. <laughs> I loved how like, oily and like dented it looked you're like i don't think i ever noticed oh my god i was like i i played through three times just so i could like look at that room again and be like mm. there's even more content i remember like everything's overgrown at the start of the the second game oh yeah yeah and then um yeah and then like and then you know it kind of just feeds in but like immediately it sets the tone with giving you a before and after shot and i was like okay so a lot of time has passed because this kind of damage 
doesn't happen because somebody like left the humidifier on. And I was like, oh, I love this. Um, and then, you know, the while, oh, what's his name? The stupid British one. <laughs> while oh, the, oh. the like, yeah, the core, while the, um, while the idiot core is sort of like trying to take you through, he's like talking and you can kind of start picking up on things through his dialogue. So it already kind of starts off really well. And then what I like about games is when, fine, give me exposition, but give it to me while you're doing something. So I think Red Dead Redemption, where when you're on quests, the only time you have like exposition conversation is when you're on these long horse rides. And I freaking love that. Cause like, what else are you going to do when you're on a long, boring horse ride? You're going to talk about shit. And I was like, thank you. Like somebody actually understands context for what's going on. And that's the other thing too, is sometimes like, I love Bioshock. Um, but definitely the recordings kind of were overdone a lot, mm-hmm. a lot, a lot. Um, and they generally didn't show up during times when like it was boring. They often, sometimes they showed up when you were like trying to fight people off. And I was like, I cannot kill these things while listening to you ramble about your DNA testing. And it was like very <laughs> frustrating because yeah. I'm like, I do want to hear this stuff. I am interested in the lore of the world that's going on and it does kind of give me context for these like items, but quit trying to humanize these people as I'm gunning them down. <laughs> yeah, I know, humanize them. Like, I don't really feel like this is inappropriate. narrative dissidents. It's interesting you bring up uh, Red Dead Redemption because I, Jared, I've you, brought that you, up a couple of times is how much I, I hated those sequences. Yeah. Hate, yeah. It's maybe a strong word, but yeah, I just didn't, uh, uh, I don't know. It, to me, riding the horse wasn't as interactive and fulfilling to me. And some of those conversations were super long. So I was like, oh man, I have to go all the way over here. And if you had to redo that mission from the beginning for whatever reason, um, going through that again was a little tedious. Oh God, yeah. No, I do not disagree with you. <laughs> like, I mean, I did not like that game. It was too freaking huge and it was too freaking long. Yeah. And yeah, those rides were so long, but at least they weren't wasting my time when I was actually interested yeah. in giving me their boring context. On the other hand, it is kind of like being stuck with that one uncle who won't stop telling the story because you cannot get away from them. They will speed up with you and keep talking. (laughs) I think it's great that you bring up the Portal series because there's a couple of games that I I put on our show notes here for for positive examples of games that use exposition. And the, the games I put on the show notes are Max Payne and Bioshock. And for me, the reason that I really like the exposition of these games and also just the storytelling in general in these games is because they're very cynical of storytelling in video games. Max Payne is very critical of the medium of video games. Like Max talks several times in the games about how he feels like he's being controlled. And now he's, you know, in the context of the story, he's talking about how he's being controlled by the people in his life, the mafia, the DEA, and the the Russian mob. Like they're they're all having these influences on Max, but he's also talking about how you, the player, have control over what's happening in the game, how you are 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 controlling him. And I think that's really interesting. And same and the same thing with Bioshock. Bioshock, we we mentioned it in our last episode with Mike Bithel. We talked about how that's a game about agency, about a person's agency, and how sort of going through the motions of playing that game is part of the experience of that game. And so um, I think in that same way, Portal is, it, it kind of falls into that same vein of stories that are about storytelling in games. And and I find that that kind of stuff fascinating. I, I think that that's a very interesting way to 
communicate ideas to players is make them aware of the fact that they're playing a game and, and being active participants in the story that's happening. That's the point of view that has been brought up quite a few times now. And that was even kind of like the point of Bandersnatch, that Black Mirror episode. And I guess the thing that like always irks me about the way it's presented in these games is ultimately the one who's having control over what happens to this character is not the player, it's the creators. Mm. And very rarely is that addressed in these games. Like, yeah, you kind of have the like, oh, the one, you know, truly man is world's greatest monster and you're the monster. Like that kind of stuff. Very Twilight Zone. Um, But sometimes it's very frustrating. Like Max Payne, I think, is a good example. Like, you know, there's a lot that was written about how he'd go on and on about how he hated killing people. And it was the same thing in Bioshock Infinite. But then the creators of the game don't give you any choice. There's no other Mm -hmm. way. And I, I think that's the thing that mostly I come down to my problem with games and the way they tell stories is they do not use their mechanics. And this is often because the writers are separated from the mechanic designer. So at my company, I am both the narrative designer and the mechanics designer. Nothing kind of gets told without me creating something to let it be told. And for me, though, that partnership makes way more sense and having like a writer mm-hmm. and a mechanics designer that aren't sort of the same person. Like you can have a writing team, but I think ultimately like a narrative designer should also be the one making the mechanics or or the leading that team. So it should almost be like a two part where you're like, you're designing the mechanics with your mechanics team. And then you're working with your writing team to write the dialogue and all that to go with it. Because I just see a waste of potential in so many games. And mm-hmm. I can see, like writers desperately trying to work within the sort of the shackles I would say of the mechanics they're given and also in terms of um, I think often like a thing with Max Payne is I really got the impression that they had originally wanted to tell this story of a guy who was like doing things he didn't want and that everything was against his will and he was fighting against that and then they didn't kind of take that to the next level of like, well, how do we express that through action? So I have a background. Um, I have a lot of backgrounds, <laughs> but my the world I kind of came from, in addition to uh, I did a fine arts degree um, and then I did uh, literature, uh, English literature, and then I worked in live production and theater as a set and lighting designer for years before finally moving into video games. And one of the things that I see not called on enough is the ability for theater to become interactive and how like Shakespeare, I know everyone goes on about Shakespeare, but I feel like people miss out on the fact that like the original pieces that were shown by Shakespeare were very interactive. The audience could say things Mm -hmm. and, and that evening the performance could be totally different based on what they said and how they reacted. You have a history there of interactive performances mm-hmm. that it, like date back even older than that. Obviously, he, Shakespeare wasn't the first, but I, that's something I've always kind of looked at is like, how can I take what I've learned in theater mm-hmm. and apply this? And so I think about bodies and the ability for actors to react to mistakes, things that happen, somebody throwing something at the stage. And a lot of mechanics designers are kind of coming from this like very strictly program world. And I'm just like, I just feel like it's such a such a loss of information that you have these like very talented mechanics designers, but they don't have that kind of liberal arts background. So they're kind of making things 
that just work rather than like mm-hmm. speak to something. To kind of talk, I guess, a little bit to your point, bringing up Shakespeare. Shakespeare did, he, he invited the audience to consider the impact of their viewing of his plays and in, in some of his plays, right? I think it was, was it Ham, was it Hamlet where he puts on a play inside of a play? So you're, a play and then he proceeds to make fun of the yeah. audience. <laughs> yeah. So, you, so as an audience member, you're, you're watching other people watching a play and you're judging their reactions to the play to find out who murderer was, man, it's been a long time since I've read Hamlet. So in a way, he's inviting you as the audience member to consider your own impact in that way. What does it mean to be an observer of these things? And I think that that's kind of what these games like Max Payne and Bioshock are doing, right? Is that when you're playing the games, you don't have a choice except the choice to play the game. Like you could turn the game off and go do something else, but you're actively engaging with the game. Now, we had Doc Burford on the show a couple episodes ago. I don't remember how many episodes ago. Our, our topic at the time was karma and morality. And we talked a little bit about Spec Ops The Line, which I think is a game that does something similar to what Max Payne and Bioshock are trying to do, which is to get you to think about your role in these video games where it, I mean, Spec Ops has been out long enough. We can spoil it, right? Yeah, I think so. So Spec Ops, you're forced to use white phosphorus on a group of people you believe are the enemies, and then it turns out to be a group of civilians. And in its shocking way, it encourages you to consider that you were the person who pushed the button. Now, again, and and this is just like what you were talking about, Megan, your choice is to play the game or not play the game. You can't you can't finish that game any other way than engaging with that one piece of the story that the designers have intentionally designed for you to interact with. They want you to push the button. And well, that sounds horrible, but (laughs) they've designed the game in such a way that you have to push the button in, in order to proceed. And I I think that this is sort of the, I don't know what to call it, like the 101 level of these video games exploring their own impacts, the the exploring their own methods of storytelling. It's like the sort of the the first step, the basic, the most basic level you can get at. I think what we'll probably end up talking about a little bit more as we're discussing this topic is these games that take, I guess, more advantage of the strengths of the medium of video games to get around these traditional methods of of storytelling and exposition. Because I I think video games are to this day still sort of struggling to find the best way to tell a story, more or less. And and for so long, we've relied on the way that other mediums have told stories. How many thousands of years has literature had to evolve? And and cinema, you know, is hundreds of years of of history. So video games compared to those other mediums are very early on. And I think we're starting to see cool new ways to do that. But it's it's still real young. Exactly. When I say that games, to me, at least to me, when I say games like Max Payne or Bioshock or Spec Ops The Line make the best use of exposition, what I'm saying is, you know, and again, this is, this is just for me, I'm saying that I think they make the best use of the traditional tools of storytelling to criticize themselves, but I, I still think that there's a better way to tell stories in video games that hasn't been explored as much. Does that make sense? I hope that's coming across. Yeah, um, I mean, there was a there's actually a short story that basically was that game. I don't remember what it was called, but essentially uh, it's set in some kind of fascist world in the future. And you're each day one person is selected from, I guess, the inmates and they're put in a room and they're told to push a button that will kill everybody in this line. And this guy thinks he's got this plan of how he's going to get out of it because you get like 
two or one or two many times to like not push the button. Um, and then essentially it's all about how this fascist government has total control and has figured it out and has like basically put him in a no win situation. And I guess like when I heard about spec ops line, I'm like, that's already been done and probably a little bit more elegantly. You don't think the act of making the player push the button is what's different from the, the, the sort of a book way of doing it or a movie way of doing it where you're uh, inactive? Yeah, totally. Um, I just would I. OK, I am probably being uncharitable because this is such a new medium. And sometimes I'm like, oh, you could have done it better. Well, that's what this whole podcast is about. That's what we do here. <laughs> that is the thing I've been frustrated by is I don't see a growth. So I would say like Spec Ops Align was like, okay, but didn't um, System Shock kind of do something similar before that? Yeah, but who played System Shock? <laughs> it's a game that a lot of people talk about, but I don't know anyone who's actually played the entire yeah, game. Yeah, same here. <laughs> I only watched the ending, but, but that's the thing. It's like, uh, I don't feel like this, like we're growing. Um, sometimes I feel like when it comes to mechanics and story, I don't actually feel like we're growing I I agree. As a medium. Um, and it's so frustrating because it's like there's so many cool things you can do. I mean, like I look at things like that short story where you're being put in a purposely malicious and manipulative situation. I and mean, that is essentially what game designers and game games do. They put you in purposely manipulative situations. And it's almost like we need that self-awareness, that level of self-awareness. We like we are manipulating people. That's not a bad thing. Films and everything, all art manipulates. But we have the ability to let the player be a bit of an actor in that. And to, I'm so I'm like, if you're going to force a player to do something, you should be really damn sure about why you're making them do that thing. And you should be really clear on the experience that you're expecting them to have when they do that thing. Mm -hmm. And that's why playtesting, I think, is so important. And why intentionality in creating your mechanics is so important. I think too much we focus on fun, what is fun, and that's just this sort of nebulous, oh, yeah. untouchable thing. Ian Bogost hates the word. <laughs> yeah, and we, we don't agree on a lot, but... <laughs> Games shouldn't be fun. Yeah, I know. Well, he said, what did he, what was his recent article that got everyone worked up? Like, games are work, you shouldn't play them? Yeah. Something like <laughs> People that. are like, I think this guy hates games or something like that. <laughs> yeah, what did games do to this man's family? <laughs> I, I love I love Ian Bogan. I, I, I hope one day to get him on the show, because um, he does. He definitely has a unique take on video games. I think the thing a lot of people don't understand when they read, especially his like very clickbaity headlines, is that he actually quite enjoys video games, but oh, yeah, no, it's super <laughs> apparent to me. Well, because because you probably actually read his articles, as do I, but a lot of people don't. They just go, "This guy hates video games." There's one game that I I do want to bring up here. It came out I think in like 2016, I want to say, and then it later was ported to VR platforms. It's called Please Don't Touch Anything, and in the game, you're just you just sit down at a chair and someone's like just don't touch anything and like that's what's your job here and you can look around there's a big red button in the middle of the table and if you just sit there until the clock runs out you like you win the game you didn't touch anything but there is like an actual story to do if you start screwing around in the room so there's a lot of puzzles once you start looking around and eventually through different combinations of the ways that you interact with this environment you do unveil a bit of a story so i thought that is kind of a fun directly related to what you were saying just the the button pushing story so i think it's a really fun game and it 
does exposition in interesting ways. Well, so here's... have you really want? Well, yeah. Ugh, my gosh. <laughs> See, this is where we need the mushrooms, Jared. All right, everybody. <laughs> All right, everyone, take them now. Once you subscribe to this podcast, set, you set got the bucket of mushrooms we sent you, and now now is the time. <laughs> Don't take mushrooms. But Megan, is it is it possible to tell compelling stories with without the use of exposition, at least as we traditionally understand it? Oh, well, I mean, I think so. I don't think you need to always give context for what exactly is happening. Sometimes it's the not knowing that allows the player to become more invested in a world because they're building up their own idea. I think every person has exposition in their real life uh, about a context of something that they're going into. You know, brief me on this. What's going on that? Send me the show notes before we go live. <laughs> you know, that kind of stuff. So it's not like exposition's not a real thing, but too often what ends up happening is there's so much work that goes into making a game and the creators don't want to lose that you know some things that are just going to end up being in the notes forever i can see how somebody who has worked on something for a very long time would like to put that somewhere where if a player wishes or if they don't they get to learn about it mm -hmm. but there's no reason you couldn't do a game where you just kind of dropped in like the stanley parable is kind of like that, which is interesting because it has a narrator yeah. being a kind, not actually exposition, but a kind of exposition. And it does start with exposition. There is that kind of cut scene of like, here's who you are, but you could cut that out and you don't lose anything. Talking about being self-referential, that game is, I think, the definition of that. Yeah. <laughs> Super. <laughs> yeah, but it still has that exposition, right? And, and so sometimes I wonder if it's not a kind of like blanket that we cling to. As we mm -hmm. are kind of moving into this new era of video games that are playing with things. But again, it's like uh, exposition is neither good nor bad. It's just, it's a tool in a toolbox. Yeah. And it just depends on how it's used. And I think it's the same thing with story, where sometimes I think we're too afraid as game designers to kind of just let the player experience the story and just like let it be. I think even with people who make games, they're still. In their head, they look at the media that they consume, like films and books and theater and radio, and they you don't get control in those spaces. And I think sometimes they don't want to let go of the kind of control that they have or that they perceive that they could have. Mm -hmm. um, and that's why you sometimes get like mm -hmm. crazy long videos in the middle of a game when I just want to like run around and look at things. And this is where talking about exposition gets a little bit hard to unpack because, again, like in the video game space, what exactly is defined as exposition? I, I think about a game like Proteus, which is a game that never heard for of the it. most part. You've you never brought it up before. It's the first it's the first time I've brought it up in something like 30. <laughs> Weird how that game almost never comes up. <laughs> I'm, I'm bringing it up now, Jared, because I think this you is like that game a lot. Game. Some people like that as a video game. Everyone has been putting together their, you know, we're here at the uh, the end of 2019. We're about to go into the 2020s and everyone's putting together their most important games or their favorite games or whatever, you know, their lists. And it's hard for me to think of a list of mine that wouldn't include Proteus on it because it did something that I haven't really seen any other games do, at least, you know, at, at least as well as Proteus did, which was, it, from from my point of view, tell a very compelling story but without any of those methods that traditional storytelling relies on. But was it, I mean, it's not a traditional story 
either. It has as much story as like something like a painting would have a story. It's all inferred. No, 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 no. Because I think it does. I think the game does have those. If we're like going all the way back to like the whatever it is, like the tenets of of poetry as Plato laid them out or whatever. For a story to be compelling, it has to have these elements, right? Like it has to have exposition. It has to have the the you know the main action of the story a rising action it has to have a climax and it has to have some sort of conclusion and in order for something to be classified as a story it has to have these traditional elements of storytelling and it's been i think very very hard for stories to succeed that don't sort of fit that model you end up listening to someone like me ramble on with only <laughs> with very little information about what they're talking about but the, the reason I think Proteus is so great is because it almost gives you the illusion that there's no story until you get to the very end. And it's only at the end of the game when you realize that you've been on this like important roller coaster ride the entire time. And roller, co- roller coaster is a very bad analogy because it's nowhere near as exciting as a roller edge coaster. Edge of your but... seat thrill ride. <laughs> edge of your seat thrill ride. Lock the movie. Um, <laughs> I guess for people who, who haven't played it, which is probably most people... Proteus is a game where you just get dropped onto a randomly generated island and you go through the seasons. You start out in spring and then it goes to summer, then to fall, then to winter. And after winter, you essentially die. You leave that island and because it was randomly generated, you never come back to it. And to me, that thing that was so magic about that game is it told a story about life and growth and decay and death. And it did all of that without me even realizing that there was a story going on until I got to the end. And I realized, oh, this island I've been exploring this whole time and I've seen the seasons change and I've played with the bees in the fields and I've chased the frogs and, you know, like all this stuff. I can never go back to that island. It's done. I can go to a new island and experience new things on that island, but it will never be the same as the one I just left. And that was like a really magic experience to me. And it did it all without the use of these ways that exposition is traditionally explored in games being the cutscenes or lore dialogue and all this stuff but it still had this really magical story at least to me and i understand not the game is not for everybody not everybody's gonna go play it and have the same experience i did but that that game was really was really magical to me for that reason i wish i got that out of that game i know i probably talked it the problem is i probably talked it up too much to you you're probably like, what, where was where was the gun? Where were the guns in this? Game? I had no guns. What am <laughs> I even no supposed guns. to shoot at? The frogs? <laughs> so, Megan, one of the, one of the things that you mentioned is you feel a, a frustration with the way that storytelling has kind of gone in video games. I, I think one of the terms that I see a lot is uh, it has a very cinematic story, and to me, that's always such a huge turnoff for a game. It makes sense. Like if you know the history of kind of our arts, like books tried to be spoken poems, Mm -hmm. plays tried to be books or tried to be spoken poems. Like, you know, writing something down can fundamentally change it. And then, you know, film tried to be theater or tried to be a book. Like, you know, a new medium is always, the creators that come in are always going to reference what came before it. And it's going to take a couple of generations of just being immersed in these mediums to be like, oh, I could do that, or I could do this, or, oh, because we're doing this, I'm not shackled to this anymore, mm-hmm. and and that kind of thing. And then you have this maturity happen. And and I do think sometimes, like, we, <laughs> I feel like this is just, like, a very Western way of being like, oh, it needs to happen now. And it does take time. Um, But I think definitely one of the things, and yeah, cinematic's probably the right word, but also for me, it's like, it's very Westernized. It's 
this very Western classical canon of creativity. Thing about Proteus, like when you're talking about it, I was like, you know, that's very similar to a lot of stories that I've heard that are, you know, about there. There are stories in the Cree tradition and, and a lot of indigenous traditions that are only told in certain places at certain times. And then when that time is over, you can't hear that story again. And, and sometimes, you know, you can you can go back to that place, but it'll be a year from now and it'll be a different place and you'll be different and the story will now be different. And that's a very indigenous way of kind of looking at the world and looking at stories. And, you know, and the idea um, in the Anishinaabe tradition Story structure is not like the hero's journey. It, it looks more like a spring. So you you know you have your start, and you kind of like you improve or you you move forward, and then you kind of hit a point, and you might circle there for a while, and you kind of like a landing, like a, a holding pattern. And if you think of like life, like a lot of life is like that, where you kind of hit a point and you can't really progress, and you feel frustrated. But every time you come around back to that point where you can move forward, you're different. Things have changed. And then you sometimes are able to get a pass in one, but sometimes it takes a couple of circles and then you move on and then you hit another point. And that's just kind of life. And that's the Anishinaabe way of telling stories is a lot of times you'll almost get these part epics where something will happen and then the characters kind of stuck in this holding pattern in this one place. And they're kind of just like, it's sometimes I think, uh, I always found it really excited, but I do know that like some of the kids who weren't indigenous, who were used to more of like fairy tales, would be like, "Oh, come on already! Like, move on!" And I'd be like, "Well, you know, she's got to learn things, and that's something that we could do in games quite easily. You could have this progression, and then have this point where it's like, okay, now you have to kind of stay here for a bit because there's things that you have to learn about yourself or about the world or about your character before you can kind of move on." And to me, that feels like a more natural progression for video games than the kind of hero story. And and sometimes, yeah, like cinematic, I think often when I hear that, yeah, it's cutscenes, but also it's like this force climax and then crescendo. And, and you're like, we don't have to do that. I think you're touching on something else that I kind of wanted to bring up in this discussion in that the, the sort of reliance on things like the methods of storytelling that cinema implies, I think, brings along baggage with it as well even as we look back at the you know one of the earliest games to be considered a, a narrative game donkey kong uh, very obviously uh, influenced by king kong and one of the earliest examples of the damsel in distress trope being used in video games and it's a trope that has persisted very very long in in video games it has been a, a driving <laughs> a driving a, a motivator for players in hundreds if not thousands of video games and that's some of the baggage that kind of gets carried over when we rely on these storytelling methods from these other mediums uh, and the same thing could be said for like max Payne, uh, you know a game that i i love very much but recognize that max Payne is motivated from the start of that game by fridging his wife and again that's a, that's another that's another one of these tropes that carries over from film over into the video game space is that an issue? Like, is it possible to to carry these these like storytelling methods over without bringing that baggage, or or do we have to go through these steps first and then and then fix it in video games? Has it been? I was about to say like it's been fixed in movies, but I don't think a lot of these things have been fixed in movies either. Well, let me add one more thing onto onto that question. 
if do you think so video games uh, as as an overgeneralization are a slightly more interactive movie in a lot of ways especially once they're narrative driven right i would say for a long time video games were trying to be like more like movies some games you know were, were on the other end of that spectrum but do you think that video games how they typically are played now need to evolve for the storytelling aspect to evolve because i feel like possibly vr adds that extra layer of interactivity to the game does that offer an opportunity to also mature how exposition is handled within that medium well i think what actually needs to happen first um because you know like i do i hear what you're saying but like you say video games but everything you're sort of conjuring up is is very specific to sort of like western triple a and i think one of the things that needs to be divorced from video games is the idea of video games as a description of the content so, I mean, it was the same thing with novels. Like, novels were basically, like, women's words. Um, it was fluff that ladies read. Uh, you would never call anything a great novel. Um, and then as time went on and the content was no longer connected to the form, the word became just a descriptor of the form. And I think that's the same thing that has to happen with video games is we say video games, we say games, but we have something very clear in our head. So we're not actually describing the form, we're describing the content. And so like when you ask if, you know, video games can mature, I would say like it already has. It's just that what we see popular video games are not those. And just like the way, you know, you have like these indie press um, books and but also just the same way, like if, if you were to base your your understanding of film on only what was shown in popular theaters, then you're going to have this very limited definition of what is a film or what is a movie. Whereas like we have this rich tapestry of film that just embodies all these different niches and all these different ideas and, and has definitely grown in lots of different interesting ways. And games have done the same. It's just that that's not what's being consumed publicly or, or popular. Like it's, it's not pop mm -hmm. um, games. It's sort of like, and we use the word indie, but like, that's, that's not really what it is. I mean, video games are so many things. They are walking Sims. They are, life simulators they are narrative hyper text link pieces about body dysphoria like there is such a wealth of things out there that are games that are video games that we don't really right now in this moment in history consider video games and i think that's one of the things that needs to happen sort of within the industry as a whole and it is happening like if you talk to game designers yes they definitely agree with that kind of like definition that games is a form not a content but you know if you talk with consumers and players try to pitch that to a publisher there there's like where's the money in that sure yeah that's exactly the where's the money at and that that is comes into like you know we live in a very capitalist minded world like late stage capitalism is a huge thing i mean i just saw I, like i swear i feel like i'm in a dystopian state sometime because i saw an ad on the subway the other day that was like we teach you how to make money from what you love to do so you can keep doing what you love. And then it's like the bottom tagline was like, it's not a job, it's a life. And I was like, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> you 
don't have to monetize every fucking little thing in your life. Like a job is a job is a job. It's okay. If you like, like it, it's okay. If you want to do it, but Jesus. And it was like, and that's the same thing with games. It's like, is it going to make me money? No, this is a, this is an art form. This is a fuck it. This is a novel. This is a film. This is an oil painting. If it makes money, it's because enough people wanted to spend money on it. If it doesn't, it's fine. But I mean, ultimately, there is as much difference in terms of what makes money in books between like self-help and the next great sci-fi novel is there is in games with like, you know, your Sims versus like, oh, I don't know, you're like Mexican wrestler beats up the dead kind of thing. Like there's so many different spaces in between that it just fills these voids. No one knows about Mm -hmm. them. And I think sometimes too, and actually too often, I think the narrative in, I guess, game reporting or or when we talk about games, it's like, oh, those things don't exist. Wouldn't it be great if they exist? Or if they do acknowledge that they exist, like, wouldn't it be great if AAA games did that? I was like, so when was the last time a big movie studio took a huge risk on some crazy indie script. And there is a reason why large studios, like film studios, usually have these sort of smaller branch studios that do the like weird stuff because those sometimes get you Oscars, but more often than not, it's just like a passion project for a director you want for your bigger thing. So that's not a bad model though. Um, It would be nice if more larger game companies copy that. Like I think about the company like King and like how much freaking money they're pulling in and then they just don't do anything with it. They just use it to make more money. And I was like, if you were bringing in that kind of cash and you actually genuinely liked video games, wouldn't you want to found like a small offshoot studio that does like weird stuff um, that people are then like, well, I don't play you know, this game, but I really like that game. And sometimes you don't even know that they made it because names are so different and companies own everything now. (laughs) I feel like in order to get King to make your game, all you have to do is add the word candy to the title and they'll probably, they'll probably publish it for you. Or they'll sue you. (laughs) They don't, they can't own the the word candy, can they? (laughs) They tried. (laughs) So man, a lot, a lot to unpack. Do you think that the reason I, I think you make some you made some great points. First of all, I'll say um, I, I it, especially on this show, I, we're very guilty of what you're talking about, sort of lumping all different kinds of games into the like the one header of game. Uh, at least I know I'm guilty of that all the time. A lot of times when I do that, I, I've done exactly what you said. I've sort of conjured this like amorphous image of all the sort of triple A games that are out there. But do you think that AAA games are successful because of the way that they tell story? Like, is AAA successful because the storytelling is approachable, because it, it uses these methods that are easily recognizable to people who have seen movies or have seen television shows? Um, you know, is that one of the contributing factors to why AAA games typically are successful is because they're not really trying to push beyond these limitations in storytelling that uh, they've made for themselves that came off really negative i don't mean for the and again I, I don't i don't mean for it to come across negative like sometimes on this show i'll i'll use terminology that i end up hating afterwards i'm like man i said that was good or bad and i didn't mean good or bad i meant like it 
inter you know like it, it interests me to understand it so okay and this is probably gonna sound this is cynical but i think it doesn't make it less true AAA games do well because of marketing and they've always done well because of marketing they have people who can make you think you need the thing and then what they end up giving you as a product is something they've made you think you need and so, yes, your point about like, is it easily digestible? Is that why it's successful? I would say that's why they people stay. It's not why they buy it in the first place. Mm. Mm. Um, I am highly critical. Much of our, our pop consumption of video games is dictated by marketing. And it has been like that since the beginning. Sony was probably like, the most egregious of it when they first started doing it but like nintendo did the exact same thing and like you know the history of the console wars um i can't remember the name the exact name of the book but there's a book about the history of the console wars that really go into why games suddenly went from this thing that was growing as a medium that was enjoyed by everyone into it's only for boys or only boys will get this or like these are games mm. just for girls I mean, it's the same problem with like Lego and toys. I mean, much of the damseling and that kind of thing wasn't so bad in a lot of early games because you had a pretty diverse team in terms of, I guess, gender representation or sex representation. Uh, I mean, a lot of the early, um, I guess, matriarchs of video games, you know, came out of England, came out of the text adventure world. Um, did, a lot of them were programmers too, like they were doing everything. And that was the sort of before marketing when marketing at that time was more like, well, we can put an ad in this magazine about computers. And people were like, oh, I like that. That looks interesting to me. Not to say that like marketing hasn't existed since before then, but then it was sort of in the nineties, especially with the whole really aggressive strain of American commercialism that kind of came out. Um, that we started seeing higher levels of manipulation of the market through psychology, through uh, repetition, through, you know, exclusivity. Like that was one of the big things. The reason why the whole idea of games are for boys is because they wanted this particular market to like want to be a part of this area. They would look at the numbers and be like, oh, you know, we're selling just as well for girls, but boys seem to be lacking. You know, why don't we tell them this game is just for boys? And then they'll like, we'll get better market saturation. So you can't actually uncouple the conversation about why do we consume the kind of games we consume publicly and, and, and in a pop way from marketing. And that's something that we don't think about. And that's something that's not discussed. I find a lot of times when people are talking about like why I want to play this game, you know, you look at the games that are selling really well. And usually they have a big marketing campaign around it. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I think like, who was it? Like, I think EA's most successful game is like their FIFA series. And they always have like a huge increase in sales around the actual FIFA. And it's the same literal game every year. They just update with like new models. There's a new pitch and they'll put that in. But I mean, essentially it's the same game. And that one does really well because there's a huge marketing campaign around FIFA. So they don't even have to really do their own marketing campaign. There's this whole thing about FIFA's amazing. We love soccer. Yeah. Oh, do you want to like be the soccer players? We have that for you. And so the game itself and this, I think this is true of a lot of like AAA games, 
is totally fine, totally consumable, you know, in a lot of cases enjoyable. But the reason why people picked it up was because somebody was telling you, you needed this. And a lot of the kind of reactionism that you get in, I guess, the gamer spheres from when it looks like they're going to lose that is a result of this like very heavy marketing telling them that this is just for them. No one's like, like you, somebody tells you something enough times, you're going to start believing it. And that's what marketing has done. That's what games marketing has done. And I think they, they actually have a lot of damage. Like they're responsible for a lot of damage to relationships between the genders in America. But that's probably like a whole different podcast. I'm curious how much of this marketing push has fed back into the design of games. Because I think about early games, like we could go back to what a lot of people consider the, the first game ever made, a game called Space War. We've talked about it a few times on the show. That's a game that has no gender representation at all and no storytelling to, to really speak of. You're, you're two ships uh, orbiting a star. You're trying to shoot each other down, and that's the game. And I think, you know, as you look at a lot of games throughout early, you know, video game design, I, I think of games like Centipede or like Galaga, these games that don't really that that don't get into don't really have much of a story per se uh, at least not as we're discussing storytelling in this episode but i wonder how much of this push to like hey make games for boys then influenced game design we're going to market games to boys you design your future games now to appeal specifically to boys so you have women in these scantily clad and you have them in these submissive roles and those end up sort of becoming the markers of this game is for boys because we've done this thing. Like, did the marketing feed back into the way that games were designed and thus sort of perpetuate this need for stories in games? I, I'm kind of like trying to lump a lot of ideas into one question here, but uh, this is all just kind of um, coming to my mind as I'm, as I'm listening to you, to you talk about this. Like, how much was that advertising influential in the way that stories were, are told in games? So the big change was sort of the the rise of the home console system mm -hmm. and the the slow descent of the arcade. When I was growing up, I we didn't have a home system. I I played at arcades and the way arcades work is the arcade is advertised and most of the time it doesn't even need to be advertised because it's shiny lights and I want to be there and it's where all my friends are at. So it's a place. Um so the games themselves wouldn't have been advertised to me what the companies would have done is they would have created advertisements to the arcade owners. And I mean, if you look at something like um, Gauntlet, which was the first four player game and it cost a dollar and that was like huge. Like you're asking players to pay three times as much or four times as much as what they pay on every other one. They're like, yeah, but you get to play with three of your friends. And so that's how they sold it the arcade owners. And so like, I think you did have a slightly scantily clad, but like it's mm -hmm. these tiny pixels. You don't really see her. And on the, um, on the outside of the arcade cabinet, she's actually presented as like, you, you know, it was like your standard, like uh, Conan the barbarian um, yeah. style, but she was like powerful. Like she wasn't standing all like weak and sexy. She was like, got her like sword out and her shield and she looked like she was going to murder somebody. And I'm like, yeah, she's wearing a metal bikini, but like there's nothing about her beyond the metal bikini that's been like sexualized and daintyized. And so 
the arcade owners wouldn't care about stuff like that because honestly, you're not going to convince an arcade, like a 50 year old dude who has to deal with screaming children all day that like, Oh, what they really want is sexy ladies on the outside. He's like, no, they're going to want to play with their friends and they're going to want to beat each other on high scores. They do not care about sexiness, especially because like a lot of these places, your median age of consumers were between like the ages of 12 and 18. So they would have just laughed you off if uh, a marketing company had come to you and said that they're like, nah, they'll just buy Playgirl if that's what they really want or Playboy. So when you suddenly had the home market, that's when you had this huge shift of, you know, this is for everybody. That was Nintendo's thing. This is for everybody. This is for the family. It's for mom, dad. And that's because they were also trying to make it a little bit more comfortable because you had this idea of, I mean, like Atari was the same way. Um, before Atari, there was kind of this idea of like, well, like games are for the arcades or like, are they for me? And, uh, and so like Pong, that first kind of in-house game was like, oh, it's for everybody. And then later again, it was for everybody. And it's really not until the nineties that you have this huge shift in advertising to try and sequester the market into these Mm -hmm. divisions. And I'm pretty sure there's been books written about this and I'm, I'm almost guaranteeing it's like the fault of like one or two marketing companies that probably had a big bite on this, but you know, it worked, it did work in terms of showing numbers, the more the marketing worked, the more I would say the companies put their faith in the marketing, the more they gave over power to the marketing companies to be like, well, what would sell? And I was like, the thing about art and the thing about fun and games is you tell the player what you think they need. If players have been playing shoot 'em ups for like ever, and then all of a sudden like racing cars come around, like, are you going to put guns on like a racing game? No, just be like, hey, have you guys ever wanted to drive real fast? That's all the question you have to pose to your audience. Like, have you ever wanted to this? Or have you ever been interested in having this kind of experience? And I feel like a lot of large companies start getting way too afraid. I think they have them. I think they're just like way too in bed with their marketing companies as well. Wasn't there the whole thing about Laura Croft where she was supposed to be Mexican? Um, Ooh, or of like, I think she was supposed to be of like Mexican indigenous descent. And the marketing <laughs> company's like, no. And in fact, the marketing company was pushing for her to be a guy. And then the company pushed back on that. And in my mind, I'm like, who the fuck are you to tell me how to make my own product? You're supposed to sell it. Don't tell me how to make my own thing. Like you would never have a marketing company come to like a mattress maker and be like, make it pinker or like put these (laughs) soft spikes on the side. And you're like, no, I don't. I, you just designed the bed of my dreams. (laughs) (laughs) Why aren't more marketing companies doing this? Well, so here, do video games need stories? Here's one of my other questions. <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. Do we need do we need stories at all? I think about uh, you know I Jared and I have been playing a lot of Apex Legends together lately, and this is a game that doesn't have a story. You drop in you drop onto this island and you you shoot other people and that's it, and yet they they still put exposition in that game. There's still cutscenes at the start of it. I think of over a uh, game like Overwatch also. Does it make sense that there's two Winstons electrocuting each other? No, it doesn't. But they still have the digital shorts to provide context for supposedly what you're doing in the game, even though it doesn't make any sense. Do we need stories? Can we can we make games just without stories? I mean, you can. Yes. 
Yeah, but you should. Should all games have no story, or is there still a place for stories in games? If you want to do a story, you should do a story. But at the same time, if you want to do a story and you want to do exploration, you shouldn't just put shooting in it. I would say is the opposite. So, I mean, if you want to do a game that's just shooting and fun and running around, don't put a story in it. Uh, and that's okay. But I think it does come back to this, like, oh, well, they put a story in it. So we should put a story in it. Or the, the people expect a story. I'm like, just give them what you got. And if your players are like, it would be nice to have context about why I'm doing this, then I think that's a reasonable response to like why am i doing this generally players won't say that unless they're really confused about why they're doing a thing yeah if you give them a gun that shoots gum and drop them in the middle of a forest they'll just go to town but you know if you if you're kind of having them like build something that's usually a case where like if you're having uh your players build like something that looks like a building or something that looks like a device then you're like, wait, why am I doing this? And then sometimes the finishing is this reward and it explains itself. But if like they if they played the thing and they finish it and you have them build this house and they're just sitting there and they're like, why? Like, why did I do this? Yeah, maybe put some story. But also if you're giving them a space where they just get to build weird machines of war and see how long they last, then no, you do not need a story. And I will... I love that that game does not have a story. <laughs> and you're kind of also describing Minecraft, a game that's very successful and doesn't have a story yep. either. Yep. Uh, maybe this is a good time to bring our discussion to a, a close. Megan, what, as, as we're talking about exposition in games, how, how can the industry improve on the way that it handles exposition? Oh, you're asking. Because um... <laughs> I feel like I was about to launch into mine and I'm like, you know what? Hold up. Let's, uh, let's hear from our guest first before I, before I launch into to to my thing actually i kind of want to hear your thing um if you don't need a story don't put it in the game yeah. please uh i i feel like we have this reliance on on like cut scenes and dialogue to keep people invested but at the end of the day like i, I don't think most players really need it all that much um you know maybe some breadcrumbs here and there but i mean if, if you put if you if you're designing a call of duty game and you drop someone into the world they're gonna know to like shoot the bad guys, protect the good guys, you know, blow up the thing that has the bomb icon on it. You know what I mean? Like there's an, we have enough of this language and expectation built up inside of games that these methods of storytelling that we've relied on for so long, I don't think, I don't think they're necessary. And early games, you know, like, like I'd mentioned space war didn't rely on them. And I think that there is still a compelling way to tell a story in those spaces that doesn't rely on these traditional methods of storytelling that we've been discussing this whole time. And so I'd like to see a lot more of that explored in games. So that's it. That's my, uh, that's my, what I'd like to see improved. Megan, how about, how about you? What would you like to see? Again, I think it comes back to my, like, I think what we're really saying is like, we're kind of tired of like AAA games being so afraid to just do a thing. Mm -hmm. um, Cause yeah, like I'll mean, a lot of the stuff that you're talking about, you can get, uh, it, like it exists and it's not even the new companies that are doing this stuff. Like the, I find it's the newer companies that are like, yeah, giving you the thing that has a story because it needs a story and then giving you the game that doesn't have a story. You just make spaceships that blow up. And sometimes having that story at the beginning can be a little bit fun. Like Earthworm Jim, it added to the world, cartoony comic book kind of thing with the like, oh, you have to save the princess. And um, now you have a super suit. Just go. 
Uh, and then there's like almost no narrative after that. And so, yes, I, will, I love games that don't have story. There are so many games that I have that don't have stories. And actually, a lot of the traditional games like that we play, board games and card games and such, don't have stories to them. And yet nobody's like, well, I need exposition for Cranium. And I was like, no, just play it. But I think like if you want something that doesn't have a story, there are lots of games out there that don't have stories that are just, you know, mechanic based, um, world based, you know, don't tell you anything. Mm-hmm. And then if you want a story, there are lots of games out there that tell you stories. I mean, one of the things for, like for my own company is I do want to tell stories with games, but like literally the word Achimostawazan in Cree means tell us a story. And that's what I want to do. But also I would love to just do like cute little apps that are for mindfulness or something like that, that don't have a story. They're just something relaxing. And I play a lot of those games too. So those things are there. Mm-hmm. But when we get critical, usually it's around AAA. And other than, I guess, embracing failure, which is very anti-Western. <laughs> like people talk about it in tech and Silicon Valley. I have yet to see it, like actually see people embrace their fear of failure. Most of the time they play lip service to it. And really what it means is I'm going to let my staff make some mistakes, but not so many that we actually like lose out on anything. Um, and I think that's just generally a cultural issue. Uh, and it's something that will be changing. And I think also as we have more voices coming into games, as we have you know more stories and experiences from people who are sort of like not your, I guess, Silicon tech bro. And those are the people that are in charge. So, I mean, we have those voices, I think, already working in these spaces. We don't necessarily have these voices in charge. And I think that makes a world of difference when the culture is radically different from the top down rather than from the bottom up because you know at the end of the day it's the owners that are making these decisions about what can and cannot go out and almost always they're beholden to their shareholders and again it just comes down to that like fear uh, but as i always have been telling people i'm like games are art they are not an investment <laughs> i mean they're probably like less safe in the stock market <laughs> But I mean, we need to reframe our thinking also about like, what is a mm-hmm. game? And, and I, I dislike that we still have to have this conversation about like, are games art? I'm like, I don't know. Like, can you tell the difference between a self-help book that Oprah likes and War and Peace? Yes. Would you say the Oprah self-help book is art? Maybe if it's ridiculous enough, but most likely no. Whereas like, would you say War and Peace is art? Probably yes, if you're pretentious like me and have an English lit degree. <laughs> I think uh, I think uh, the consensus on our show, uh, the answer to the question is: our video games art is maybe. So that's, the, <laughs> that's what we've Solid arrived at on this show maybe. several times. Yeah, it's definitely a hard maybe maybe. Yeah. Oh, hard maybe. <laughs> Jared, how about you? How how can the industry improve on the way that it? it uses exposition and uh, other traditional methods of storytelling. Yeah, I think that there's room for both games as a product to be consumed and games as art. I would like to see is more resources available, perhaps on a public level, for 
the more experimental types of storytelling in, in, in games because it it is a business like people still need to get paid to eat and companies need to pay their employees so i understand that as well i think that i enjoy citizen kane in a very different way that i enjoyed the first transformers movie and i i, I found value in both of those things Unfortunately, you know, it's, it can be expensive to make games. You have to take time out of your life or out of your pocket and uh, do that on your own dime. And I think it'd be neat to see more resources going towards smaller independent studios to explore that um, while also making the same kind of AAA games that a lot of people seem to enjoy. I'm interested to see what they do with Half-Life Alex and its move to VR and what they can do with that medium, consider VR an, an evolution of the video game I'm curious if they can also evolve the ways they tell stories and games using that as well. Yeah, I'm I'm excited. I'm I'm, I'm always excited for the the future that VR holds. I feel like in this episode, Jared, I feel like I came across real negative on uh, exposition, and well, this is how I feel a lot of times. Like this show, I think the way that we've framed the show is like inherently kind of negative, and we try not to we try not to do that as much as we can. Um, but there's definitely some topics that uh i feel like i come across more negative and i and i and i want to say like i i have i'm not against these these methods of like you know traditional storytellings in games i i've been playing control lately and uh have been really enjoying my time with that game and that's a game that relies very heavily on on all of the things that we've discussed uh in this episode like it relies very heavily on dialogue cutscenes and lore to communicate its its story and i'm and i'm really liking that game to me, I think there's just like this, there's this other experience I have when I play games that circumvent those typical ways that stories are told. And to me, those end up being more meaningful and more impactful on me. And so I want to see more stuff like that, which is maybe why I come across kind of negative in this discussion. But I, I, see, I seriously hope people don't think like, oh, S- Steve hates the stories in video games, like just like Ian Bogost. <laughs> well, we want to see things always get better, right? And we and you really start yeah. to, when you see the status quo, you're like, well, what could we do to make this interesting again and, and make it different? Um, and so mm-hmm. I think, you know, once you see that, that's when you really start thinking about all the ways that uh, things have been and why that has been that way for yeah. so long and, and how we could, you know, maybe improve that. But it's really hard when it's a hypothetical thing. It's like, I don't know, someone should just make it better, <laughs> you know, so yeah, in, in so it, many words. Do it gooder. <laughs> exactly. Gooder. More good. But oh, like, cool. I don't know, just like I listen and I think it's it's just, it's growing, right? And, and also I'm really sad that the discourse or the understanding around criticism has been like, oh, if you criticize something, you hate it. And I was like, I don't know. Like the tradition of literature is if you criticize something, usually you're pretty invested in it. Be worth criticizing, I think. Yeah, because you like put effort, right? Like criticism takes energy from you. You're not going to put energy into something you thought was meh. I'm sure there's lots of games we've all played that were like, eh, eh. A lot of times when I see something And uh, I'm like, oh, my God, that could have been so much better. Usually what I end up doing is I sort of like start breaking it down. Like, when did it stop working for me? I think actually control is a good example because I feel like those stories got chopped up a lot and were put in places that they shouldn't have been. Anywhere something has to be repeated should not be exposition. So if you're going to die and you're going to have to go through it again, that shouldn't be there it should be in those moments that once they're over 
you don't have to go back to that over again. Because that's what kills exposition a lot of times in games is where they're placed for your like level save or or your respawn point. And usually it's like the first time you go through that, you're like, oh my God, that was so cool. But by the eighth time, you're just like, I hate this. I hate who wrote it. I hate who shot it. I hate everything about it. And that is a problem with anything that's repeated too often, too much. And so like in those cases, for me, it's, this isn't the problem with the exposition. This is a problem of design. And that's something that could easily have been fixed, I think, is you just have something in your game where it's like you had a cutscene or you had some kind of dialogue that's going to be repeated. Put the save point after or don't play it again. And uh, and death in games, the like the fail state in games is definitely I, that's at the top of my list for for topics I want to discuss someday on this. Is that going to be your memoir? The other, death in games. That is. That's going to be. Yeah. Maybe we should. That'll be the last episode we ever do. Here. <laughs> fittingly, it would, fittingly, it would be the last one. Games are dead. Yeah. Podcast yeah. over. <laughs> no, and then you restart from <laughs> the first one. <laughs> would you do this all over again, knowing how it's turned out? Absolutely, hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah, me too, for sure. This has been great. Uh, did we did we cover everything on exposition that we wanted to? I'm sure we could talk about it for several hours more, but did we hit the main points? Yeah, okay. no, I think there's a lot of discussion to be had around this, and like I say, almost every episode, I, I I want to hear everybody's thoughts on this because it is such a broad topic. I'm, I'm sure listeners will have some input. Exactly. Yeah, and, and if you do have any questions or comments about exposition or any of our previous topics, you can always reach us at podcast at gbfeature.com or connect with us at gbfeature on Twitter. Also send topic ideas along I, I love hearing uh, i love hearing those whenever we get them we don't get them too often but every time we do i'm like oh that is a great idea it goes right on my list so yeah reach out to us podcast at gbfeature.com that's going to do it for this episode before we get out of here i want to thank our guest megan Byrne. megan thank you so much for being here this this is this has been an awesome discussion where can people find your work how can they keep up with you uh they can more likely than not find me on twitter at burn underscore megan and it's b-y-r-n-e underscore m-e-a-g-a-n was that a little cat? kitty in the background cat? did i hear oh, yeah, it all cat. the meows you'll find megan is that the first cam meow we've had on the stop show? podcast <laughs> over <laughs> i did it jared it's a great podcast fun you're canceled <laughs> as a reminder we release new episodes of this amazing podcast every two weeks be sure to subscribe so you don't miss anything if you like what we do and you want to help us out head over to your podcast app of choice and give us a review i want to thank kyle clark for making our theme song you can check out his show this is rad anywhere you get your podcasts i'm stephen bennett that's at stephen underscore the gamer on twitter i'm at jared bruner we want to thank you the listener for taking the time to listen to us chat about video games this has been game breaking feature remember it's okay to disagree just don't be a dick about it Bye. The old proverb. Bye. Bye.